Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Brothers and sisters, if you would, please open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 7. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses here this evening, and if you would, please rise as you're turning there. Please rise as we honor the public reading of God's Word. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, and he has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you are the least of all the peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments, which I command you today to observe them. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. Oh, Father, please grant to us that we would be able to live lives fully devoted to you in everything. That, Lord, even as we see the various challenges that the world challenges us with, Lord, that you would give us the grace to stand firm, to stand firm in the faith, and that for no other reason than love for you, oh God. Grant us the strength that we as a church even might thrive in the midst of difficulties, and that you would even cause your name to be known beyond uh, even this church, and that your gospel would pierce the darkness of this area, and that in so doing, Lord, the world would see that the world does in fact belong to you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, here with Deuteronomy chapter 7, we are continuing, Moses himself is continuing to expound the great principle 
that was spoken of all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, what is often called the Shema, that uh, where Moses says, you are to hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, or Jehovah is our God, and Jehovah alone, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. We looked last week at the, the way in which Moses applied these principles to the challenge of prosperity, that when we uh, are prosperous in this life, there is a kind of challenge or a temptation not to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength, and when we prosper, to forget him. So this was, the, this was part of the explanation, the, the expounding of what it means to truly be committed solely to the Lord our God. And here Moses is moving now to another area that we need to be careful when we see these kinds of challenges to remain devoted to God. Part of what it means then to be devoted to God is that there would be a clean break from the rest of the world, that there would be a separation from the rest of the world. doesn't mean that you go out of the world, as the Lord Jesus Christ has said, not that they would go out of the world, but there is a separation from the world in terms of particularly its ideas, its ideologies, and its religion. There needs to be a clear break with these things. Israel must be completely devoted to God here and show that devotion to God by utterly rejecting and destroying every expression of idolatry that they find in the land of Canaan when they go in. That's, that's the idea. If there's anything short of this utter rejection of the Canaanites and of their religion, then there will be a compromise such that there will not be full devotion given to God. So again, Moses is continuing to expound these first great principles. When you prosper and you come into the land, remember God. When you come into the land and all of these other peoples give you these other ideas about paganism and whatever else is going on, you need to utterly reject them and even utterly destroy them. Now, this, with some variation, still applies uh, today. We don't go out and we destroy altars, but there is always the same challenge to believers from uh, 3,500 years ago in the days of Moses all the way to now. There is always, as it says in the book of Genesis, there's always Canaanites living in the land. There, there's always others that are here. There's always a need to interact with those who have other ideas and who are trying to push those ideas on the church. And it is always a test of the devotion of the church, whether or not we will compromise with the world or whether or not we will hold firm to the faith that has been delivered to us. The same challenges that face them. Moses says, you need to utterly reject and destroy anything that has to do with idolatry. And for us, we need to utterly reject all of the ideologies of the world that set themselves up against Christianity. And so in our own day, we have things like the LGBTQ movement. In science, we have evolution. We have in the environmental world, environmentalism, which often devolves into pagan, uh, pagan pantheism. We have things like Marxism. All of these ideas set themselves up against Christianity, and it is a mark of devotion to God and a necessity for everyone who calls upon the name of God to utterly reject and in appropriate ways fight against these various things. There can be no compromise in terms of accepting the ideas of. There can be no compromise uh, with these kinds of ideologies. There needs to be a clean break from the world. Part of the way that you show your devotion to God is by rejecting the world 
And what Moses makes clear here too, the reason you are to do that is because God loves you. He has saved you. And part of what that means to be saved by God himself is that now there must be a complete devotion to God, which means a rejection of the rest of the world. Now, we're going to look at this passage under two headings. First in verses one to five, the fact that you must reject the world. So that you must reject the world, verses one to five. And then verses six to 11, why you must reject the world, which is namely because God has uh, saved you from your sin because he loves you. So look at me again in that verses one to five. Now you'll notice as we look at verses one to five, there is one command that really governs uh, the entire passage, or at least in this for this paragraph. This is a bit obscured by the way that, that uh, particularly one word in uh, verse two is translated in this particular translation. The, the way the passage works is there is a a uh, setting that's given in verses one and two, at least the beginning of two, then there is an emphatic command, which is to utterly destroy them. And then that is then expounded upon in the rest of verse two, all the way through verse five. What's get, what gets obscured a little bit is that in verse two, where it says, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them. It's probably better to understand that you shall conquer them as when you conquer them. And then the next part is the single command that governs the entire passage. So the idea is you're going to come into the land. God is going to drive out all these nations, these nations, these seven nations that are mightier than you are. And when that happens, when he delivers them into your hand, and then when you conquer them, you must utterly destroy them. That's, that's the, the, the command that then governs the entire passage. And this would, of course, refer to the conquest that happened under uh, the, the rule of Joshua, who uh, took the place of Moses, so to speak, though not with exactly the same authority, though it was, it was, uh, it was similar in a lot of ways. So Joshua takes Moses' place after Moses dies, and he leads the people into the land. And with Joshua then, the people of God obey this command, and they utterly destroy uh, those nations that are there. Now, this leads us to one of the questions that is often asked, which is usually asked in antagonistic ways against Christians. How could it be that a good and loving God could have commanded the, the Israelites to utterly wipe out nations? And in what way would this be any different from genocide? Uh, is there any difference between what Joshua did, does in the 15th century BC and what happens today with genocide? We are rightfully um, abhorred when we hear uh, about uh, those who tried to commit genocide. And often those who are more antagonistic towards Christianity will say, well, look, God is just like all of these people who commit uh, genocide. So what is, what is the answer? Is the God uh, of the Bible for genocide? Now, the, the way we, would, we need to answer this question and think about it is in terms of the difference between Joshua's actions and, the different, and, and those who commit genocide is that the relationship is exactly the same relationship that an executioner bears to a murderer. One is righteous, one is not, though their actions may be very similar. Uh, an executioner is someone who is carrying out a judicial sentence that has been passed, and his actions are righteous if the judicial sentence which is passed is in fact righteous itself. And this is really what Joshua is doing. When, when God commands the, the people to utterly destroy these nations, it is because there is a judicial sentence that has been passed. And in this way, it's no different from, say, the flood 
or the judgment that was just passed on Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, the destruction is the same. The only difference is the instrument that God uses. God can use any instrument he wants. Sometimes he cho chooses to work supernaturally through his own means, or other times he will use uh, armies or other peoples to bring judgment upon a nation. Regardless, either way, the question is not so much uh, whether or not, the question is not so much uh, the, the action itself, but it is, is the sentence that God passes, is it just itself? And if it is, God as the one who is the judge of all the earth has the right to judge all of the nations and even whatever happened with Joshua in the, in the, the, the destruction of all the Canaanites is actually far less than what's going to happen on the last day when God judges everyone, uh, the entire world, and calls everything to account, and in that sense will um, utterly destroy by casting into hell far more people than Joshua ever killed. So the question is, is was this judgment just? This is the great difference between um, genocide and Joshua's actions. Joshua's actions are the execution of a just sentence. Genocide is murder. So the taking of a life is common, but one action is righteous, one is not righteous. Now, I, I remember having one, someone challenge me on this um, with regard to uh, all of the honest people that died in Jericho. He would tell me, you know, well, and this is actually someone who claimed to at least be Jewish, so he claimed to be uh, at least a believer in the things he was trying to challenge me on. But he said, you know, how, how can we understand, you know, you know, all the people in Jericho died, all the women, all the children, all the men, uh, even all the ones that were honest. And the problem is, is that that honest person doesn't exist. That There were no honest people in Jericho. There were no good people. Um, and we, we get this very clearly from other places in the scriptures, which describe the kinds of acts that these nations had committed. If you have read through Leviticus 18, you know, we've read through it fairly recently uh, in our uh, trek through the Old Testament, in our Old Testament readings for the, uh, the scripture readings for the evening services. But if you remember in Leviticus chapter 18, there are some quite uh, despicable sexual sins that are noted there. Um, all kinds of incest, every kind you can imagine are, are noted in Le Leviticus 18, things that the Israelites are not to do. And it even descends all the way to bestiality. Uh, that's the level of sins that are addressed in Leviticus 18. And Moses says, you are not to do all these things. Now, some of those things you would think like, well, obviously you're not to do those things. Uh, you know, just your conscience should let you know, apart from Moses spelling that out, that you should not do these things. But in, in verse 24, Leviticus 18, Moses says, all of the nations that you are going in to take possession of their land, all of them do all of these things. All of these terrible sins are all the things that these other nations regularly do. And even... The timing for this judgment that would come in the days of Joshua was after God had given them hundreds of years to repent. He gave them quite a long time, and he said, you know, the sin of the Amorite has not been filled up. But when it is filled up, the land is going to vomit them out because of all the sins that they have committed. And so this was, in fact, a very just sentence. And God was right to pick an executioner, which he did, which was the people of God, and he fought for them. And uh, executed a sentence which was, in fact, just, making this quite different from genocide. Now, if we were to then ask the next question, can this kind of war happen today? The answer would be no. It cannot happen today because God does not reveal acts of judgment by special revelation any longer. That's, that's not what he does, except for the, the final act of, 
of judgment, which is going to come when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And so it doesn't matter that if someone today were to commit genocide and then say, well, I'm doing it because God has told me to do it. Um, it's not valid because God did not actually say to do it. Um, it is just as murderous and even worse if someone who is a murderer uh, commits a murder and tries to pretend that he has the authority to do it as an executioner, to, to assume civil authority that he does not have, to pass a sentence that has never actually been passed in a court of law, and to then wipe out an entire group of people. That would be even worse. That's a, 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 an even worse kind of perversion of justice. So these kinds of things uh, cannot happen today because uh, there is not the same kind of divine pointing to judgment that there is in the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, in the New Testament, the, the accent falls not so much on God using these uh, overwhelming means to point to uh, coming judgment, but it's rather that the last real pointer to the final judgment that God has given is, in fact, the death of his son, the death and resurrection of Christ, whereby he has shown, without a doubt, that he has fixed a time of judgment through the man whom he has appointed, as Paul argues in Acts chapter 17. With the death of Christ, there is in some sense a, a moving forward of the final judgment and placing it upon Christ, such that now believers uh, in Christ, their sins have fully been dealt with. The, the final, the condemnation of their sins that was going to happen at the end of time has in fact happened in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so because of that, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is the clearest sign that will ever be given that there is, in fact, a final judgment which will come. And so there are great differences, and we would not expect this kind of thing to happen today. So with that out of the way, then, let's look more about at the way in which Moses describes what it means to utterly destroy them. As I mentioned, the second part of uh verse 2 all the way to the end of verse 5 is really just an expounding of what it means to carry out this command to utterly destroy them. Notice there are a few things that Moses says. First, he begins with what it does not mean, what you should not do because you are going to utterly destroy them. And it becomes clear uh, with even the commands here and even the way this is carried out in the days of Joshua that utterly destroy never seems to mean destroy every single person in every single city. There are some cities where that happens, uh, but even the fact that they could make covenants with them or they could make have marriages with them um, shows that there are still some people who are going to be uh, alive. But this is the very first thing that said, you shall make no covenants and you shall have no compassion or mercy on them. Now, this is very fitting in light of the idea that what is being commanded is an execution of judgment. Um, there's no need to pity the one who has had the sentence passed against him, especially when the sentence is a divine sentence that cannot be reversed. God has said this, is, this, is, uh, the, this land is going to spit them out because of all the things that they have done, and you are going to go in and to possess those lands, and there needs to be nothing that gives you any hint of the kind of pagan idolatry that, the, that this land and this nation, that these nations observed. All of it needs to be completely eradicated. Now, if we were to ask again the question, how does this apply today? Because there are some differences in terms of the application uh, to today. Um, the reason why, if we were to ask, is there a sense in which we need to have no compassion and make no, no covenants? There would no, be no kind of 
uh, any kind of mercy that we show to those uh, who are outside the grace of God? The answer would be no, not now. Because the, the difference between our situation now and their situation is which side of the sentence of the judicial sentence we are on. We are living in a time where God is graciously postponing the final judgment. He is graciously postponing that, that others might be led to repentance. Once the sentence is passed, there is no longer any possibility of repentance. And at that point, what is spoken of here will actually apply in exactly the same way. There will be no compassion and there will be no mercy. There will be no covenants at all. And so if we were to say, if we were to receive a divine word, whereby we knew for certain that God was going to execute his wrath on a particular person, then we would know that that person is under God's judgment. And if we didn't have any other information, if this was an infallible word from God saying that uh, what was going to happen, and we were assured that this person would not repent, then at that point, there is no longer any need for mercy or for compassion. Now, again, we don't have those kinds of words. God does not reveal those kinds of things to us by special revelation. We even have a difference in the New Testament in that we live in the age of the Spirit where we do expect many people to be converted. In the Old Testament, before the Spirit was given, there would not have been the same kind of expectation for conversion as there is in the New Testament. Now, though, we expect the nations to come to Christ. And so today, what we do is we plead with sinners and for loved ones to turn to God. But there is still an application to this which we need to, to think clearly about. We plead with our friends and family now to turn to God, to turn to Christ, but we do recognize, and this can be something that's hard to think about, when the final judgment comes, then again, these words will in fact apply to everything that we think and everything that we do. That is to say, even those who are closest to you on the last day when the judgment finally comes, there will be no mercy or compassion that you will show to those people. Uh, it's, it can be a, a difficult thing to think of now because we love our friends and family so much who do not um, know God. But even, the scriptures speak of this in Revelation, even the destruction of unbelievers on the last day will be something that you rejoice in God for, that you will praise him for as the God of all justice. And this won't be something that's unnatural to you because on that day, Every common grace will be removed from everyone who's an unbeliever. They will truly be given over fully to sin. And there will be such a difference between you and, and the other person that there will be no longer anything that you have uh, in common with them. And it's, it's terrible to think about. But in, in many ways, um, when, a, when a sinner will be judged on the last day, he will really be shown to be something like a monster and you will rejoice at their destruction. Now, this is a warning for everyone who uh, does not know the Lord Jesus Christ now. You, you live in a world where everybody shows you great compassion and mercy. You have people who plead with you to turn to God and who show you great love and compassion. On the last day, if you remain obstinate and do not turn to God, there will be no compassion for you. You will be judged and all will rejoice even as God condemns you. This, this is really what, what is spoken of uh, in the scriptures and even what we see here. There is to be no compassion shown to these people who are going to be destroyed in the land of Canaan. They are under God's wrath and God has said they're not going to be redeemed. They are given fully over to my wrath. They have committed sins. They have hardened themselves 
and now they are going to be destroyed. It is a warning. It is a warning to turn to God while there is time and do not presume upon his, his love and kindness, but rather turn to him now that you might find forgiveness for all of your sins. Now, the next thing that's said, not only is there no covenants, no compassion or mercy, but there's also to be no intermarriage. There's to be no intermarriage. And the reason for that that Moses gives is because if your sons or daughters intermarry with those who do not believe in God and who practice all of these idolatrous practices, their hearts will be turned away. Um, and this applies again the same way to us now. It is not right for anyone who is a Christian to be marrying uh, anyone who is not a Christian. And this means as well, it is not right then to be dating or to, be, to, to show interest, to pursue in any way anyone who in fact is not a Christian because they may turn your heart, they may turn your heart away from God. Uh, it's very often the case that this happens. Now, one of the things that is a great blessing with living in the New Testament era, the New Covenant era, is that if you find yourself in a relationship where you are married to someone who does not believe, either because there is some kind of apostasy or maybe you were converted after you were married, um, or maybe you uh, even sinned by marrying someone who does not believe. If in any of these situations you find yourself, there is in fact more hope in the New Testament because we live in the age of the Spirit again, where the Spirit has been given, and it may be that God will in fact convert the person that you are married to. It doesn't change the fact that it would be sin to get into a relationship like that knowingly, but it does mean that you are not to give up hope. Um, in the Old Testament, the level of influence always goes one way, it seems. Um, if you marry someone who is a pagan, you will become a pagan too. In the New Testament, and particularly in 1 Corinthians 7, it's who knows, maybe God will convert uh, the, the person that you are married to. And so it's something that we should pray for, but continue also to be on our guard against. What it, part of what it means to have a clean break from the world is that we do not marry those who are in fact uh, a part of the world and who believe in the things of the world rather than in the one true God. Now, that's what, that's what Moses says about what it does not mean, what it does not mean, or what you should not do in light of utterly destroying them. So if you're going to utterly destroy them, you can't show mercy to them, you can't get, make a covenant with them, you can't intermarry with them. But positively, what it does mean is given, in, particularly in verse 5, thus you shall deal with them. Notice, there's not even so much an emphasis on destroying the people. The sole focus of the passage, it's not to say that that didn't happen, but the sole focus of the passage is destroying the idolatry. You shall destroy their altars, you shall break down their sacred pillars, you shall cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. Four times it said, very emphatically, anything related to any kind of paganism needs to be completely destroyed. Anything related to any kind of idolatry, and this was to be taken literally uh, in uh, the days of Moses and, and in the days of Joshua. Everything that pointed to any kind of idolatry is to be completely destroyed. Now, again, there's some difference with the New Testament here in that we are not the instruments of executing judgment like Joshua was in his day. And we live in different times where there is um, more hope for conversion. So in terms of like acting against other people, there is a, a, a number of differences. However, this does show that in terms of the main thing that Moses is calling the people of God to is an utter separation and break from the world, an utter, utter separation and break from the things which the world teaches 
in which the world does. And this for us primarily needs to be applied in the area of refusing to accept the ideas of the world standing firmly upon the faith which has been given to us. Something, so, something that uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, I think, addresses this very thing. He says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So here's the idea again, the idea of, dis- of destruction. But he says it's not physical things that we have in the New Testament. He says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So what the Apostle Paul is saying, he's saying, in my ministry, this is what I aim to do. I aim to completely destroy anything that sets itself up against the knowledge of Christ. And this, brothers and sisters, is what we are called to do. I mentioned uh, earlier at the beginning a number of of different uh, ideologies that set themselves up against Christianity, um, many of them very antagonistically, you know, the LGBTQ movement, uh, evolution, uh, environmentalism, particularly when it becomes pantheistic, Marxism. There is a growing tendency towards our growing uh, influence of New Age religions, Eastern religions, uh, various forms of paganism and superstition. All of these are on the, on the rise. And the point that every Christian needs to understand is that there can be no compromise with any of these. There can be no compromise. There needs to be a radical and clean break from the world. And we need to understand the ways in which the scriptures address all of these things and all of them need to be thoroughly rejected. And the other thing then that we need to to keep in mind is it's not just that we need to do this out of a general obligation, but that this is an application of what it means to have one God. This is, this is an application of what it means to obey the first commandment. Remember, the first commandment in the Ten Commandments is kind of a summary of the whole, or at least implies all the rest. You were to have no other gods before me. The same thing that we saw with, with Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, the Shema. The idea is you have one God, and you have one God alone, and you are to love him, and you are to love him only. This is part of the application of that. If you do not do this, you have broken the first commandment, the great commandment, and you have uh, broken the, the, the sum of uh, all of the commandments in loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. If you compromise with the world, then you do not have the Lord your God as your God alone. And you are not loving him with all your heart, soul, and strength. And so this is, again, part of the application that Moses is giving. You must have a clean break from the world. Now, notice that in verses 6 to 11, Moses speaks of why you are to do this. He, he does this through a, a, a number of ways. The first two things he says are a description of the people of God. You are two things. You are a holy people, and God has chosen you to be his special possession in all the earth. Now, the idea of being holy already implies all of these things that Moses has said. The idea of being holy is that you are consecrated to God. You are devoted to him and to him alone. Uh, The idea of being holy is that you are set apart from the world such that now you belong to God. If you are holy, then of course you must, uh, the act of making someone holy would be to to separate them from the rest of the world. And so this holiness implies everything that Moses has just said. You are called to holiness and God has made you holy. Therefore, you need to show forth that holiness by in fact being separate from the world. 
Now, notice in the second thing that Moses says is that God chose you to be his special possession, that there was an election that happened, and that this was by grace. That is to say that God has called you to be holy, and he called you by lovingly electing you. And we read in Ephesians chapter 1 that he, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. There was an election that happened that showed forth God's grace to you. And if God has shown you this grace and choosing you out of the world, then you must, in fact, separate yourself from the world. Now, Moses develops this idea of election further in the next two verses. He says in in verse 7, why God did not choose you. And then in verse 8, he explains why God did choose you. Notice what he says in verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people's for you are the least of all the peoples. So that's to say, if you had any kind of delusion about self-grandeur, that God has chosen me because I am so great, Moses says, listen, every one of the nations that are in this land are greater than you are. If it were based on ability, skill, worth, value, in terms of what you could do on your own, I could have chosen any of the other nations over you. It is not because you are great but it is rather, as God says in verse 8, it's not, not because of what you have done that makes you worthy of election, but it's simply God's own action. It's because of God and who he is that he's chosen you. Notice what it says in verse 8. But because the Lord loves you, and the, these, these two reasons return over and over in this section in Deuteronomy, it's such a great ex, um, expounding and explication of the gospel itself. Because the Lord loves you, number one, And because he keeps the oath, he's keeping the oath which he swore to the fathers. He's faithful to his promises and because he loves you. That's why all these good things are happening to you. He's loved you. He set his affections on you before the foundation of the earth. Election in the scriptures is always an expression of love. Um, Those who have a hard time with the doctrine of election in, in some ways make things very difficult for themselves because they are removing one of the greatest comforts the Bible gives which is that God has chosen you before the foundation of the world, which means he set his affections on you in a way that is unchangeable and that guarantees your eternal blessing simply because God loves you. Election is the greatest, uh, the, the greatest expression of love in the scriptures. Uh, that God sending his son to die on the cross is a working out of the love of election itself. God chose to do that out of love for you. And it's an expression of how far that electing love goes, that it actually led to the death of his son. Election is an expression of love. We see the same thing with uh, marriage. If we compare it to marriage itself, the great way in which marriage is an expression of love, at least first and foremost, when you have that wedding ceremony, you are saying, I have chosen to live with you and to love you and I have not chosen anyone else. It's the, the expression of my choosing you out of all of the one people that I could have chosen that shows that I have a special love for you. And that's what God has done with election. He has said, I have chosen to love you. And I show you that by revealing to you that my love for you is grounded in an everlasting election. So that's election. And remember, the second reason for God's choosing is his covenant that he's, he's keeping the oath which he swore to the fathers. These are the two great pillars. God's choosing has to do with love and, uh, uh, and with the covenant. 
God is faithful to everything that he has promised, and everything that he has promised must come to pass ultimately because God himself has promised it. And because of this, then in in verse 8 in particular, the thing that's promised is that he would save them. Notice uh, what's said at the end of verse 8. He's keeping the oath which he swore to you to bring you out with a mighty hand. He's redeemed you out of the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So remember now the train of thought. You are holy, you are chosen. You are chosen because God loves you. He loves you, his love for you is seen in his election of you and in the fact that he was faithful to all of his promises to save you from all of your sins. And this is what ultimately he has shown to you in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sent his son to die for you, to redeem you out of the house of bondage, out of the house of slavery to sin and to Satan. And he's done this, verses 9 and 10, so that you would know the true God. This is something that we see all throughout the Exodus. Uh, Part of the problem of the Exodus, the reason why the Exodus was necessary is because without the Exodus, the people of God are in exile, and because of that, they are ignorant of God. So over and over again in the Exodus, that you may know that I am the Lord. Over and over, that's the refrain, that you may know that I am the Lord, that you may know that I am the Lord. And here God is saying, I have chosen you, I've made you a holy nation, I've done it because I love you, because I'm faithful to all of my promises, and I have, because I'm faithful to all my promises, I have in fact redeemed you in time, and I've done that redemption so that you would know that I am Jehovah, that you would know that I am faithful, you you would know that I keep all of my promises to the thousandth to the thousandth generation of those who love me, and that even, even too, that I am a God who, rep- who will repay in justice anyone who does not obey my commandments. This is a great explanation or great expansion of um, the way in which God had revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. Same kinds of words are, are spoken, and also the reason that is given for the second commandment, that God keeps his mercy to the thousandth generation, and that he repays uh, with judgment those who are disobedient to him. This is what God showed in the Exodus, and what he shows first and foremost above everything else in the redemption that we have in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in light of all that, then, um, Moses continues in verse 11. Verse 11 really is the center of the entire passage, and we'll complete uh, chapter 7 next week. But the center is, if all that's true, then you just, you simply must obey. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment. Remember the commandment being singular, the commandment being to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, the statutes and the judgments which I command you today to observe. Now, if I were to ask you the simple question, will you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength? Hopefully your immediate answer is yes. That's, that's the, the heart response of every Christian. It is yes. Will you have no other gods before Jehovah? Uh, as it says in the first commandment, the answer should be yes. Now, brothers and sisters, what that does mean It can be very easy to say that you are going to love God and then not understand the details of what that means. What that does mean, and what Moses is saying that it means in Deuteronomy chapter 7, it means that you must stand firm against the world. There must be a clean break from the world. And you must do this because of the love that God has shown to you first. Notice the logic of this passage is the same as throughout all the Bible. You are to obey, to love God because he has loved you. And brothers and sisters, is he not worth it? Is, does God deserve anything less? 
if he has saved you from your sins, if he's loved you before the foundation of the world, if he's chosen you to be holy, if he's redeemed you by the blood of his son, if he's been faithful to every promise, if he's given you his spirit, if he's made you a co-heir with Christ, will you not serve him? Will you not separate yourself from the world? Brothers and sisters, you cannot serve two masters. And as Joshua said to the people of God, even as they had entered into the land and they saw all the faithfulness of God, so too I say to you this evening, choose this day whom you will serve. Choose this day whom you will serve. You can either choose to serve the gods of this world or you can choose to serve the living God, but you cannot serve two masters. Serving Christ does mean that you utterly reject everything that is in the world that sets itself up against God himself. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do thank you for the love which you have shown to us. How thankful we are for your election, which is rooted in your everlasting love. How we are thankful for the way in which you were faithful to all the things which you promised, that, Lord, even when your people had sinned, that that did not nullify your faithfulness. Lord, let, let God be proved true, though every man a liar. Lord, we're thankful that even as we ourselves did not keep up our end of the bargain, Lord, you still sent your son to, to be the propitiation for our sins. And Lord, we do plead with you in light of this great love that you've shown to us, that you would help us, help us to serve you with all of our heart, help us to stand firmly. Lord, as we feel the weight of the world pressed in upon us, help us to resist well, to stand firm in the faith, and in this way to utterly destroy all of the things that set themselves up against the knowledge of you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, please give us a five-star review as this will help make the Word of God preached more available to others. Also, if you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F.com.